I want to read from Matthew 16. Would you turn there with me? Matthew 16. Let's enjoy the Word of God tonight in this study of history. Matthew 16, verse 13. I want to read down through verse 19. The Bible says that when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want to call your attention to these last verses here, Matthew 16 and 18. Jesus said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Two things I want to say about this statement by the Lord. First of all, many people believe the church was built upon Peter. Christ said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Now the word Peter means a stone, and the Greek word there is Petros. And those who believe the church was built upon Peter often cite this passage. But the Greek word, remember there, is Petros, and that's significant, and that just means a small stone. Jesus said, Thou art Peter, a stone. And then He said, Upon this rock I will build My church. And that word for rock is Petra, and it means a ledge of rock or a bedrock. And the Lord is not saying, I'm building the church upon Peter. He's saying, I'm building this church upon the bedrock, the ledge rock truth, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, because that's what Peter just confessed. Now let's look at it again. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, a stone. And upon this rock, this ledge of rock, the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I will build my church. And then he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Many people read that and say, well, evidently nothing was to prevail against the church. That's not what the Lord means here. Actually, the church has suffered through its history many setbacks, even apostasy, a falling away, a departure from the faith. What he's actually talking about here when he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he means prevail against my building it. That word hell there in verse 18 is the Greek word Hades. When the Lord died, His soul went into Hades. And of course Hades was the place where all of the souls of those who had died were gone and were held captive. But Jesus would not be held captive. And He was telling Peter here, I'm going to break free. I'll break out of Hades. The gates of hell will not prevail against my rising from the dead and building my church. And this is what he's telling the disciples in this passage. Peter, you're a stone. But upon this rock, the bedrock truth that I'm the Son of God, the Christ, I'm going to build my church, and Hades will not prevail against it or against my building it. Sure enough, three days later, the Lord rose from the dead. 
And about 50 days after His death and resurrection, when the day of Pentecost came, Jesus did establish His church. He sent down the Holy Spirit upon His apostles that day, and the Spirit empowered them with miraculous abilities, and of course with divine and inspired revelations of God's will. And there in the city of Jerusalem where Jesus Himself had been crucified, Peter preached the first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost after His resurrection. 3,000 that day gladly received Peter's word, and when he told them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, they gladly received His word, the Bible says, and they were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Thus the Lord's church was established that day in the city of Jerusalem and had its beginning. If you want to know the beginning of the Lord's church, it was on the first Pentecost day following His resurrection in the city of Jerusalem, roughly 50 days after He died and rose from the dead. Then the apostles continued to evangelize Jerusalem. And thousands of people were converted and saved, and the Lord added to the church every day those that were saved. And the church grew. The Bible says that even many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Then they took the gospel throughout Judea and began to establish congregations of the Lord's church. And the apostles and early evangelists went out around the Mediterranean world throughout all the great outposts of the Roman Empire preaching and teaching Jesus Christ, converting people, turning them from sin unto God through Christ, baptizing them, and of course them being saved, God added them to the church, and they started congregations of this one body, this one church, all throughout the Mediterranean world. And we read this history in the book of Acts. Places like Ephesus and Antioch and Corinth and Rome and other places, they established congregations of the Lord's church. Now, the church had its difficulties while the apostles were here on earth. But you know the apostles were here in person and they visited the congregations, many of them that were having trouble, that had immorality being practiced and they corrected it, that had departures and the incoming of false doctrine, they were able to correct that. They wrote letters such as we have in the New Testament. We have Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and others where the apostles and others wrote to the congregations instructing them in the ways that God wanted them to go, correcting them in departures from the New Testament practice. And as long as the apostles were on the earth they were able to do that. But the apostles would not always be on the earth. And before they died they warned in many places of a coming departure, an apostasy, a falling away. Would you turn to 2 Thessalonians? 2 Thessalonians with me in chapter 2. And let's read the first four verses there. <clears throat> now for some reason the church at Thessalonica, and that's who Thessalonians is written to, had the idea that the coming of the Lord was going to be very soon. They were disturbed about that. They were disturbed about their loved ones that had died already, worried about them. Paul had to assure them and correct them many times. He says in verse 1, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering get together unto Him, 
that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So Paul warned them that Christ would not come right then. He would not come except there come a falling away first, a great apostasy, and this man of sin be revealed. Other places Paul talked about this. In Acts chapter 20, if you'll turn there, to verse 28 with me. And let's read down through verse 31. Paul here has visited these elders at Ephesus. He's talked with them. And he warns them in verse 28. He says to them, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseer, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to mourn every one night and day with tears. Paul cried over this situation. He wept over it every day. And he said, I've warned you night and day with tears that when I leave, grievous wolves are coming in. That's false teachers, not sparing the flock. And he said, also of your own selves, even among you, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And he warned these elders, take heed to yourselves and to all this flock of which God's made you overseers. Be careful about this apostasy. Then over in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, he writes Timothy about this later while he's still in prison at Rome because the Holy Spirit has revealed this to Paul. And he says in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 4, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So he talks about a departure from the faith, a departure in doctrine and other ways. And he said, men will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They will forbid you to marry. They will command you to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Paul was exactly right in these warnings, for shortly after the time of the apostles, the church went into an apostasy. And I want to talk just briefly about that. There are many things we could say about this departure and this falling away. But one of the first things that happened was there began to be made a distinction between clergy and laity. Now some of you have heard of clergymen. You go to a hospital sometime and they've got a clergyman working or they have a parking spot for clergy. Some have clergy stickers on their automobiles. I've tried not to have one of those on mine. 
<clears throat> the Bible makes no distinction between Christians like this. There's no such thing as clergy and laity. Sometimes you hear about lay preachers. So-and-so is a lay preacher. I read in the Bible of lying preachers, but I don't read about lay preachers. All of us are the same in Christ. If there's one thing taught in the Bible, folks, it's that every Christian is equal and none of us are to be exalted above the other. But they did. They exalted preachers above the common people in the pew and set up a clergy system and divided them from the others in the pew whom they call laity. And they turned preachers at that time into the priest of a local congregation. Now in New Testament times the church never had a one-man priest set up over a congregation. There was no fellow that wore certain religious garb. I'm talking about in the New Testament. I'm not talking about under the old law. No one became a priest over a local congregation. Every Christian is a priest. Male or female makes no difference. You don't have to wear special clothing to be a priest today. Ever since the church was established, everyone that's been a member of it's a priest. If you're a Christian tonight and in the Lord's church, you are a priest. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him that hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. John writes in Revelation 1 how God has made us kings and priests unto God. Some translations call that a kingdom of priests. We offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. We are priests in that sense. And so men began to take a preacher in a, in a congregation and turn him into a priest and set up a system like that. This was a complete departure, of course, from the New Testament. In addition, if you'll look over in Titus 1, verses 5 through 7, they begin to make a distinction between elders and bishops. The Bible doesn't make that distinction. Listen, an elder and a bishop the same office. But men begin to make a distinction and say, no, bishop is a higher office than an elder. It is not. It is the same office. Notice Titus 1 verse 5. Titus was an evangelist. Paul had been working on the island of Crete there in the Mediterranean. And Paul said to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Notice elders, verse 5. Then he gives the qualifications, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Notice verse 7, for a bishop must be blameless. And so he goes on to, again, describe the qualifications of an elder. An elder is mentioned in verse 5, a bishop in verse 7, it's referring to the same office. And in every New Testament congregation, when they were fully developed, the Lord put a plurality of bishops or elders in these congregations as well as deacons. Over in Acts 14, verse 21 to 23, read with me. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They have left Antioch up in Syria and gone over into Antioch of Pisidia and in some other areas over there like Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and other places. 
The Bible says in verse 21 of Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. The New Testament church had a plurality of elders in every church. Did you notice that in verse 23? A plurality of elders or bishops had control over one single congregation. Now listen, in New Testament times every congregation of Christ's church was completely independent of the other. There was no human headquarters, no city anywhere in the world where the headquarters of the church existed. The headquarters of the church is in heaven and that's where the head of the church is and that's Christ. <clears throat> and all of these congregations are self-governing and autonomous under Christ. They each have the New Testament as their rule of faith and practice. They are independent of each other. They each have their elders that meet these qualifications, these bishops or elders. And they have the oversight and the authority over each congregation. They have no authority in any other. In other words, when you saw the church at Jerusalem or perhaps at Antioch or Corinth or Rome, each of those congregations had their own set of elders that had authority only in that congregation. So the elders at Jerusalem had no authority in Antioch or in Corinth or Rome. The elders in Rome had no authority in Corinth or Antioch or Jerusalem. They were completely independent of each other, self-governing and autonomous with no earthly headquarters. Now man comes along with this apostasy that Paul had predicted. And the church began to depart from the faith just as they had predicted. And they began to change the organization of the church. I want to just notice briefly some organizational changes that occurred very early after the death of the apostles. Not only had they set up the preachers to be priests in each local church and made that distinction between a bishop and an elder, but they put bishops, one bishop, over, you see, a, a district of churches. In New Testament times there was a plurality of bishops only over one church. Now men come along and they put one bishop over a plurality of church. And so a bishop would rule every church in a given district. Then they created another office, archbishop, meaning higher bishop. And this archbishop became over all the congregations in a given state or a province. Now the Bible doesn't mention archbishops. There is no office in the New Testament like that. Men had come along, as Paul said, and departed from the faith. There was a falling away here and they were slowly changing the organization of the Lord's church. Now one man, an archbishop, is ruling all of the churches in a state or a province. Imagine now one man in charge of every congregation in Oklahoma. That's what we're talking about here. And what if that one man is corrupt in his doctrine and in his practice? He will infect every congregation in Oklahoma. But if you've got a plurality of elders in every single congregation, bishops, with authority only in that congregation, if one gets corrupt it need not affect the others. 
And so the infection occurred quickly. This departure from the faith occurred rapidly. Next, they set up the office of a cardinal. What's a cardinal? You don't read of a cardinal in the New Testament. But a cardinal became an office where he was over all of the congregations, all of the churches, maybe in the states of a nation. So it became a very broad office. And he had great authority. Imagine now having one man over all the churches, for example, say in the Northeast or in the Southeast or the Midwest. That's what we're talking about here. And that eventually led to the office of Pope. The Bible knows nothing about a Pope. doesn't mention the word. Pontiff is not mentioned. These are terms that are foreign to the New Testament. I know it's believed that Peter was the first Pope. He was not. Peter was simply an apostle equal to Paul and all the other apostles. And never did he become the vicar of Christ here on earth or hold such an office. The first Pope I read about in history was a man by the name of Boniface III around 606 A.D. You cannot put a date on the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. It occurred as a gradual departure from the New Testament practice. And of course when that departure was full blown it resulted in the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not saying these things now to hurt people's feelings but we're talking about church history and this is church history and you can go to any library anywhere and research this for yourself and find it out for yourself. There are many books written upon it. Now we mentioned if you'll look at 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 to 3 <clears throat> that there was to be a departure. The New Testament church, of course, in Philippians 1 and 1 only had bishops and deacons in each local church. But now we notice some doctrinal departures that came along. And on the chart that I gave you, I mentioned several of these. And, you know, there are a whole lot more departures in doctrine that we could talk about. So I decided that we'd just put a few up on the board above. And I would tell you how we got a lot of the doctrines and practices that you'll see in some churches today and especially in Catholicism. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. One of the first departures in doctrine is the use of holy water. This is water that supposedly is blessed by the priest. And when it's blessed, of course, it becomes holy. And then it can be used to sanctify and to purify things. But you know, folks, a man can pray over that water all he wants to, and he won't make it any holier than what it is. And water and water alone is not going to sanctify anything. In Hebrews 9 and verse 22, the Bible says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So this holy water idea is completely foreign to the Scripture. You never read of it in the Bible. The idea that a man can bless water and turn it and, and make it pure and make it holy and that water when sprinkled on something 
will give it uh, sanctification and cleanliness and holiness and such things is completely foreign to the New Testament. But you see, men are coming along like the apostles predicted and they're departing from the faith. And they're giving heed to these false doctrines. Then secondly, there's the practice of Latin Mass. That occurred around 394 A.D. And that's where church services were conducted in Latin. Now how would you like for me to preach tonight in Latin? Do you know Latin? Would you understand me if I preached in Latin? You say, Pat, I wouldn't know a thing you said. I know you wouldn't. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27 and 28. If men had just stayed with the New Testament, here's what it said about foreign languages or tongues in an assembly. If any man speak in an unknown tongue or language, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. Now listen. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. God does not want any language spoken in an assembly unknown to the audience unless there is an interpreter. Therefore to conduct a service in a foreign language would have no edification value whatsoever unless that was interpreted. And even then he didn't want it to be any more than three. He wanted to keep these languages to a minimum. The doctrine of purgatory came along in 593 A.D. and that's the idea that if a person dies who's lived wickedly, their soul goes into torment. Now that part is true. If you die in sin, folks, you're headed to torment immediately after you die. There's no doubt about that. It's taught in Scripture. But you see, men came along and devised the idea that you could pay a priest so much money, and therefore he could pray and get your loved one out of torment. And this really became a money-raising scheme. It's really what it became, and people were extorting money off folks that were worried about their dead loved ones. It was a horrible doctrine, and that started in 593. But if you'll turn to Luke 16 with me in verse 19, I want to show you that no priest or anybody else can get a man's soul out of torment after he's dead. Jesus told a story about two men that lived here on earth, what happened to them after they died, and I want to read it with you. Verse 19. Christ said there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That's a place of comfort. Now notice verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried, and in hell, or Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. Here's a guy now in torment immediately after he died, and he's begging for this beggar to be sent over to him, see? with just a, enough water on the tip of a finger to cool his tongue. He said, I'm tormented in this flame. Verse 24, But Abraham said, Son, remember, that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. 
but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. There was a great gulf or an expanse separating the righteous souls from the wicked who were in torment. And Abraham said, this gulf cannot be crossed, this expanse. We can't send someone to you, neither can someone from where you're at come to us. Once you die, your destiny's fixed. You can pay any man on earth all the money you want to. And he cannot get your soul out of torment. There's nothing worse than dying in sin. This was a horrible doctrine that came along in 593, purgatory. The idea of kissing the Pope's ring or, or toe came along in 709. If you want an audience with the Pope, he may hold his ring out and you can kiss it. Or perhaps the big toe, many fall down, grab his foot and kiss the toe. There's a statue of Peter in Rome made out of brass and the right toe, the, toe, the big toe on the right foot's nearly worn off of it from people grabbing that statue and kissing it. I have a picture of it. Wish I had it with me. We just put it up on the screen. Horrible practice. We've all seen the Pope travel around in the Pope mobile and we've seen thousands of people line the streets and we've seen folks bow down to this man. And if you want an audience with him, as I said, you, he'll hold his hand out and you can lean over and kiss the ring. President Roosevelt one time made a trip over to Rome and someone asked him, if he'd like to see the Pope. Now I'm not going to tell you what Roosevelt said. It's really not to be repeated in company like this. But he would not go see the Pope because he knew the ring would be held out and he was not going to kiss it. And he shouldn't have. This man is not worthy of that kind of honor. Now remember it is believed that Peter was the first Pope. And that is not true. If you'll turn with me, to the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 25 and 26, I want to read to you something about Peter. He went up to Caesarea to preach to a centurion up there named Cornelius and to his household there. Verse 25 says that as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now think about that. Here comes Peter into the man's house. Cornelius just dropped down right there and began to worship Peter. Look at verse 26. Peter took him up saying, Stand up! I myself also am a man. He wouldn't accept worship. What makes anyone think that we should bow down to some man who claims to be head of a church? Peter would not accept this. That's why Roosevelt wouldn't go in and see him. If I were to meet the man, I think I could be very kind to him, but I would not bow to him. We don't need to be bowing to anybody but the Lord Jesus. The doctrine of transubstantiation came along in the year 1000 AD. What is transubstantiation? Look that up in your Strong's Concordance. It's not in the Bible. What is it? The idea that when a priest blesses the bread and the fruit of the vine in the communion service, they literally become the flesh and the blood of Jesus. There's a transubstantiation, a change that takes place. And just by this man blessing it, 
it turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And that's completely foreign to the New Testament. You bless that bread and it's still bread. You bless the fruit of the vine and it's still the fruit of the vine. Now it is to the mind, the bread is, the body of Christ, but it doesn't literally change into that. And the fruit of the vine is to our minds the blood of Jesus, but it doesn't literally change into the blood. Transubstantiation is not taught in Scripture, but that came along in the year 1000 A.D. If you'll notice Acts 15 and verse 20, in this chapter in the early church there was a big meeting up at Antioch. They were discussing up there circumcision and the law of Moses and what could be bound on us Gentiles. And so they finally came up with the letter which they formulated from the Holy Spirit to write to the churches. Here's what they told them in verse 20, that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. God has always forbidden you and I to eat blood. Were the first things that Noah was told when they got off the ark after the flood was, do not eat the blood of any flesh. That's the life of the flesh. You'll find that repeated again over in the book of Leviticus and in other places in the Old Testament and now in the New in Acts 15 and verse 20. If a priest blessed the fruit of the vine and it became the blood of Jesus, we couldn't drink it because we're forbidden to eat blood. But of course it doesn't change into his literal blood. That man can bless it all he wants and it remains fruit of the vine and it remains bread. Then the practice of celibacy came along in the year 1015, the idea that those among the clergy in that church could not marry. And that has produced a lot of immorality as you've heard from the news. Homosexual practices and of course pedophilia, fornication. Several popes in history, it is a historical fact, have fathered illegitimate children. Because it's not normal for a human being in most cases to remain celibate. God even said of Adam back in Genesis 2, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make an help meet for him. And most people really find the need to marry in order to avoid fornication. And of course that's what the Bible encourages us to do. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul was a single man. Paul never did marry. He was able to control the desires of his body and that was fine and of course Paul would desire that everybody be that way because you can serve Christ maybe much more unhindered if you're not worried about a companion and that's his argument here. But nonetheless in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 8 and 9 Paul said, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, that is single. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn, that is to burn with lust. It's better to marry. And you'll never find in the New Testament where people that held an office in the church couldn't marry. In fact, one of the qualifications for a bishop is that he be the husband of one wife. Deacons are to be married. And their qualifications are given in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But did you know the Apostle Peter, whom many think was the first pope, was a married man? He was. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5, read there with me. 
Paul makes an argument for the fact that he could have had a wife, and he brings up some of the other apostles. A lot of the apostles were married, and Paul mentions this. He said in verse 5, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Peter. He said, Don't me and Barnabas have a right to have a wife just like other apostles do, or just like Cephas or Peter does? You say, Pat, was Peter a married man? Would you turn with me to Matthew 8, please? Verse 14 and 15. Yes, he was a married man. The one whom many believe was the first pope was married. The Bible says in Matthew 8, 14 and 15, when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. Jesus here healed Peter's mother-in-law. His wife's mother was sick of a fever. Peter didn't know anything about this celibacy law. But Paul told us men would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, listen, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. That's exactly what happened in 1015. Celibacy was imposed upon all the clergy, completely contrary to the Scripture. Then at 1190, another doctrine came along that I'm going to talk about a little bit further in just a minute. That was the sale of indulgences. You know, when the Catholic Church got to where it needed a little money, they sold indulgences. What's an indulgence? It's the right to sin. They sold you the right to indulge in sin, and for so much money, the priest guaranteed your forgiveness. In other words, you could buy your forgiveness with a special contribution. So if you want to go out one night and paint the town red and have a good time, buy an indulgence. It was a horrible practice, a horrible doctrine, but that was what was happening, and that's what Paul predicted that men would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. You and I know that no amount of money can purchase forgiveness of sin and the right to indulge in it. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, Peter said, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is the blood of Jesus that takes sin away and no amount of money given to a human being who might pray for you will allow you to indulge in sin and buy your way out of it with a special prayer from Him. What a horrible doctrine. We'll talk about that more in just a minute because this doctrine was so repulsive to men like Martin Luther that it went a long way in bringing about the Protestant Reformation. The last doctrinal departure I want to mention is the practice of sprinkling for baptism. The Bible practice was always immersion. But eventually men changed that doctrine and allowed sprinkling or pouring of water. The first case that I know of in history of anyone that had anything other than immersion was a man by the name of Novation in the year 251 A.D. Novation was sick. Sick unto death, really. 
And he'd never been baptized, and they couldn't move him. He was too sick. So they decided to bring water to Novation and sprinkle it upon him. And they did that in 251 A.D. and called it baptism. At first it was called clinical baptism because this was done only in cases of extreme emergency. But you know, once a practice starts like this, it gets adopted. And so in 1311, at a church council in Ravenna, Italy, sprinkling was officially adopted as the practice of the Catholic Church for baptism. That was made official in 1311 in Ravenna, Italy at a church council. What does the Bible say about baptism? Well, Romans 6 and verse 4, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you're risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. And so baptism in New Testament times was always by immersion. That's how it needs to be today. These are just a few of many doctrines that we could talk about. And the result of this falling away of the first century church now, these departures in doctrine and organization, ultimately resorted in the formation of the Roman Catholic Church. And folks, I cannot give you an exact date when the Catholic Church began because it began as a gradual departure from the New Testament practice. And when fully developed and blown, it resulted in the Roman Catholic Church. And the situation in Europe after the Catholic Church began was very grave. The Dark Ages came upon the earth. And if you want a picture of what Europe was like during the Dark Ages, if you lived in Spain or Italy or France or Germany or Switzerland or England, you were literally born a Catholic. Every person in Europe was born Catholic. That's just the way it was. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, taxed every citizen and their property. Now can you imagine a church taxing us today? It's bad enough for the government doing it. Well, we ought to got some amens on that one, I guess. The church taxed every person. It was called Peter's Pence. And you paid taxes to the Catholic Church whether you liked it or not. That's just the way it was. The state, the state governments enforced all of the church laws. So whatever laws the Catholic Church wanted enforced, the different governments throughout Europe enforced it. The Pope appointed all the emperors and kings. He was the supreme authority in Europe. It was a dark, dismal period in the history of the world after the New Testament church went into apostasy and the Roman Catholic system arose and people were greatly oppressed by it. Now, why did all that happen? Because people like you and I, common people, didn't have this book. The church, the Catholic church had the scripture. And the common person like us didn't have the Bible. So we couldn't read anything. We didn't know all this was wrong. Nobody had the Bible. Then in the 1400s, something great occurred. A man named Gutenberg invented the printing press. And when the printing press was invented, the Bible could be mass produced. 
And when it was mass produced, people like me and you got a hold of it. We decided, you know what, we can understand this book. It's a revelation from God. We're commanded to study to show ourselves approved. Jesus said, search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. They're they that testify of me. And so we decided, you know what man did? The Catholic Church wrong here. I don't read of a pope in here. I don't read about cardinals and archbishops. I don't read about a priest in every local congregation. I don't read about these doctrines, this indulgence idea and purgatory and such things. I don't read these things. And men became enlightened from their study of the Scriptures. And the common man now had the Bible and the genie was out of the bottle. Bibles were mass produced. People understood it. And then the Renaissance began. One of the great periods of history. And you'll remember from studying history in school how explorers began to set out on the, the seas and oceans of our world, discovering new lands and continents. So we start reading about Magellan and Sir Francis Drake and Ponce de Leon and Columbus and others who sailed out on our oceans and seas and made great discoveries. And of course a lot of that now has resulted in you and I being in this great country because America was discovered and so were other lands and continents. And so the Renaissance began and people began to be enlightened and some of the world's greatest literature and paintings occurred back during this time. It was a period of great enlightenment. But also during this time the Protestant Reformation occurred and I want to talk a little bit about that tonight before we close and we'll take up our study from there tomorrow night. But let me talk a little bit about the Protestant Reformation. What's that? Well, it began over in Europe. The, the Protestant Reformation was actually a protest movement. When people started reading the Bible, they began to protest against Catholicism and a reform movement was started. What they were trying to do was reform the Catholic Church. You can't reform the Catholic Church. The Pope's not going to step down. He's not giving up power. But a lot of men came along trying to change this false doctrine, this departure from the New Testament. And instead of getting back to the New Testament practice, they wound up starting denominations that differed from each other and just more division. And one of the great instances of this beginning of the Reformation occurred in the 1500s. In Germany there was a man born by the name of Martin Luther. Not talking about Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther. Martin Luther, like most other people in Germany, was Catholic and so were his parents. In fact, Luther's parents were coal miners. They were very poor. They were hard-working people. And Luther's parents were a lot like you and I as parents. Luther did not want his children working in the mines. He didn't want Martin Luther to be a miner. He wanted something better for his son. And so Martin Luther, as a young man, studied to be a lawyer. He was going to school. Now one day on the way to school a thunderstorm came up and Luther got caught in it and he got struck by lightning. It didn't kill him, but it scared him to death. And he flashed a prayer to his patron saint, who the patron saint of coal miners was St. Anne, so he flashed a prayer to St. Anne. 
And he prayed, Saint Anne, save me, I will become a monk. If you'll just spare my life. He thought he was a dead man from that lightning. Now his life was spared, no thanks to Saint Anne. And a few weeks later, Luther quit law school and entered a monastery to study to be a Catholic priest. He was a brilliant man. And if you've studied any of his writings and all, Luther was a very brilliant person. He was able to take the original language like Greek and translate the, the scriptures into German. Just very studious and brilliant. But as Luther studied, he was given the opportunity to become a Catholic priest there in Wittenberg, Germany. Wittenberg, Germany. In 15 and 13, something very significant happened in Wittenberg and a lot of other places in Europe. The Catholic Church was needing vast amounts of money. St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was in need of renovation and they needed large sums of money to make the repairs. And so the Catholic Church went back to an old practice that started around 1190 and that was the sale of indulgences. They sent indulgence sellers all around Europe to sell the right to indulge in sin, guarantee and forgiveness if you'd just contribute your money. They also went around collecting money for people that had loved ones in purgatory where their souls could be prayed out. And these indulgence sellers had a little saying that they often said as they went through these cities of Europe that as soon as you're coin in the coffer rings another soul from purgatory springs. And they were selling these indulgences and they made a mistake of coming to Wittenberg, Germany. Martin Luther was there as a Catholic priest and Luther had been studying his Bible. And he had already concluded that there were a whole lot of things wrong with the Catholic Church. In fact, when the indulgence sellers came to Wittenberg selling those indulgences, Luther got so irate and upset that he wrote down what he called 95 theses, 95 things that he found wrong with the Catholic Church. He went out on his church door there in Wittenberg and nailed them to the door and challenged any Catholic on earth, including the Pope, to engage him in debate on any one of them. Nobody did that to the Pope. Luther did. Well, the Pope didn't change and he didn't debate. They excommunicated Luther. And in around 1521, Martin Luther started the Lutheran Church, one of the oldest Protestant denominational churches. And the Protestant Reformation had begun in earnest. Remember they were protesting the Catholic Church and trying to reform it. It was a protesting reform movement and anybody that protested was a protestant or a Protestant. And so Luther started this, this denomination in 15 and 21. Now he kept a lot of practices of the Catholic Church and never got back to the Bible but we owe men like Luther a great debt of service for their courage and their willingness to stand up against the trends of the time and their lives were threatened. In fact, the Catholics sought to kill Luther on several occasions. The next church, the next denomination to be formed is what we call here in America the Episcopal Church. Now I'm going to name these churches not to be cruel to them but to give you an idea of how all this started, how we got all this religious division. The Episcopal Church over in England is called the Church of England or the Anglican Church or the High Church and it started around 1534 in London, England and here's how it started. 
England at this time was Catholic, just like most of Europe was, and Henry VIII was king of England. Henry VIII was married to a woman named Catherine. She was from Aragon, Spain, and her uncle was the king of Spain. Henry had asked the Pope to annul his marriage to Catherine. He told the Pope, Catherine can't have me any males, any male children to take the throne after me, and I want my marriage to Catherine annulled. But really what Henry wanted was, was Anne Boleyn, a 19-year-old girl that he had a crush on. He wanted to get rid of the older woman, Catherine, and marry the younger one, Anne. But you see, Catherine, his present wife, her uncle was the king of Spain. So the Pope's in a pickle here. If he doesn't grant Henry's request, he makes the king of England mad. And of course, if he grants Henry's request, he makes the king of Spain mad. Which one's he going to insult here? So the Pope just wouldn't answer. He didn't reply, and Henry got tired of waiting on him. And so Thomas Cramer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, annulled his marriage to Catherine. He put her away and married Anne Boleyn. When he did that, the Pope had to act. They excommunicated the King of England, Henry VIII, and kicked him out of the Catholic Church. Henry said, that's all right, we'll start our own church. He did, the Church of England. And the British Parliament became the ruling body. Now there's a New Testament practice. And they wrote a common book of prayer. And so the state church, the Church of England started, and that's how it came about. We call it Episcopal here in America. And you remember our forefathers who came to America were fleeing a state church. They wanted religious freedom. They didn't want to be forced by the state into the religion that they practiced. And so they came over to this country. Many people did just for religious freedom. But that's how the Episcopal Church began there in London around 1534. Then the Presbyterian Church began around 1536. It was started by a man named John Calvin. Sometimes we call this the Reformed Churches. Wingley and others were involved in that. But Calvin was a Catholic also, but began to side with the Protestants in France, and so the Catholics ran him out of France. And he fled to Basile, Switzerland, where he took refuge and hid from them, and he started there what's called the Reformed Churches. We know them best here in the South as the Presbyterian Church, and they're called Presbyterian because they're ruled by presbyters. They have a presbytery, a governing body here, and so hence they took the name Presbyterian. The next major denomination I'll mention is the Baptist Church. It first began in England, London in 1608, then in Scotland in 1611, and of course one of the first Baptist churches that we have here in America is in Providence, Rhode Island, started by Roger Williams around 1639. You see, all this religious division was brought over to America when we were settled and colonized. The Baptist church came about this way. The word Baptist means immersionist. If you say, I'm a Baptist, you're really saying, I'm an immersionist, because these people believed in immersion. They were right on immersion. Maybe not for the reason the New Testament says, but they were right on the practice of immersion. And at first they were called Anabaptists because this group insisted that anyone from the Presbyterians or Episcopals or Lutherans or Catholics that would be a part of them was going to have to be immersed if they'd had sprinkling or pouring. They insisted on immersion, and so they were called Baptist or immersionist because they insisted on that practice. 
And that's where their beginning was. England, London, 1608, Scotland, 1611, Providence, Rhode Island, here in America, 1639. I'll mention finally the Methodist church that I attended myself for many years. Initially it started around 1729. I have a date here of 1784 because it was probably uh, officially adopted then or, or began at that time. But it began this way. There was a man by the name of John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley. They were very religious men. And uh, they loved worship and everything. They would get study groups together and they developed certain methods and ways of doing things. They were tired of the rituals and the formalism of the Church of England or the Episcopal Church. So they met in these smaller groups and as I said developed their methods and rules and so eventually the name Methodist because of their methods was hung upon them. And so we have the great Methodist Church in many locations here in this country and perhaps around the world. That had a beginning in 1784. And on and on and on we could talk about how churches have formed ever since then. There have just been many of them. The Mormons came along and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints around 1830. In the 1880s the Holiness Churches began. Around 1895 the Nazarene Church began in Los Angeles, California. Around 1925 the Assemblies of God became a denomination in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And on and on and on, and we still see the rise of denominations today, different churches. All of this has come about now because men left the practice of the first century, the New Testament practice, and departed in doctrine and in organization which resulted in Catholicism, and then men have protested that ever since and sought to reform. And all we've got today is a bunch of warring factions of religious people that cannot have fellowship with other, each other, that cannot sit down in a common assembly and break bread together. We've just got religious division. And so you travel around a place like Mustang or Yukon or Oklahoma City, towns all across America, and go up and down the streets and there are different churches on every corner. They wear different names, they teach different doctrines, they have different plans of salvation, they're organized differently. They're woefully divided. And we just have a religious mess in this country and around the world. All because of this departure. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 13. Let me read you two scriptures and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13. You know, Paul begged that we not have division. He pleaded with people. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to hear me. Hear Paul. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see what God's will is? For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you, or divisions. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. There's your denomination, see. So Paul said, is Christ divided? 
was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He scolded them and beseeched them regarding their division. Now would you turn to John 17 finally with me, verse 20 and 21. John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus on the very night that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, the night before he died, the whole 17th chapter of John's a prayer. A prayer prayed by Jesus the night he died. He prayed first for his apostles, and then he prayed for me and you. Here's what he prayed in verse 20, 21. Neither pray I for these alone, that is, these apostles alone, but for all them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, Father, as thou art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Why? That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed we would be one. Why? So the world would believe. Now the world looks at these churches that are all divided up and teaching all these different doctrines and many of them throw up their hands and they say, my goodness, this is confusing. If this is Christianity, why should I want it? What do I believe here? I've got a church over here that says you can't fall from grace. This one says you can. One says you've got to be immersed. This one says sprinkling and pouring. One says baptism is essential to salvation. Another says, no, it isn't. And so there's all kinds of factions and doctrines and divisions. And many people just throw up their hands and say, I don't know what to do. And the world can't believe because people that profess to follow Jesus are not one. The Lord prayed that we would be one that the world might believe. Folks, tomorrow night, We'll continue this study, and I want to show you how we can be one. I want to talk to you about how we can have the Lord's church in the 21st century, how we can restore the New Testament church and have it in any city or community around this world, across this great country. And if you'll come back tomorrow evening, we'll talk about that, the restoration of the New Testament church and how to be in the Lord's church, just like you read about in the Bible.